Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, glad to be here with you. We are, we are entering into one of my favorite months of the year, uh, March. Anybody else love March? I love March because it's kind of a transition month. We're, we're finally exiting winter and coming into spring. I love March because the days start to get longer. It's just a reminder, the time changes. Is it next Sunday? Is that right? So we actually lose an hour of sleep. This isn't the good one. Uh, but, but the days do start to get longer. Um, I also love March because the grass literally is greener on the other side. Like when you get to April, the grass is already greener. Now, that means you have to start mowing and taking care of it and all that, but it's still just the freshness is in the air, and so I, I love this month. But probably one of my favorite parts of this month is March Madness. Uh, to me, there's no greater three-week period in sports. I love the, the games, the Cinderella stories, the comebacks, the underdogs. I love the format of uh, win and go on, lose and go home. I love everything about March Madness. And, and as Americans, we kind of have this love obsession with the, this tournament. Uh, American corporations lose roughly $4 billion due to unproductive workers during the tournament, most of it within like the first weekend, $4 billion dollars. I'm not even kidding. Um, I know some men who um, have elected to have a certain procedure done a couple of days before March Madness, just so that they can lay around for the weekend and watch uh, the tournament guilt-free. I lived in Kentucky for nine years. I mean, it's not... <laughs> Um, and, and I think that one of the reasons why we are so obsessed with this tournament is because of the underdog stories. We love the underdog stories. We love comeback stories. And, and underdogs win in this tournament all the time. In fact, if you fill out a bracket regularly, you know the rule of the 12 over 5. That every single year, there's going to be a 12 seed that beats a 5 seed. It just You can almost predict the unpredictability of it all. And people who track this kind of thing, they, they say, now get this. People who track all of these odds, they say that you are more likely to win the Mega Millions lottery and back-to-back, like back-to-back Mega Millions lottery, only buying one ticket each time than you are to fill out a perfect bracket. You have a greater chance to win the lottery back-to-back times, only buying one ticket each time than you have of filling out a perfect bracket. They say that the odds of filling out a perfect bracket are this, 1 to 92 Anybody know what that number is? Quintillion. I had to Google it to see <laughs> what, what that was. That is a nine followed by a two followed by 17 zeros. I, I told John Robertson that the other day, and he said, um, I filled out a, a perfect day one time, and that was like the height of victory for me. That was like the best day ever. But I think that's one of the reasons why people love March Madness so much. It's the underdog stories. It's the comeback stories that draw us in. They make us root for teams that we've never even heard of, and we have no idea what state they're in, but we find ourselves cheering for them. We love stories about people overcoming all of the odds. And stories like these that we get to hear from some of our IU coaches uh, this morning. Let's check out this video. We love stories about underdogs and about those who come back against all odds when, when they're down. And to be honest, it's one of the reasons, not only why I love March Madness, it's one of the reasons why I love reading through the stories in Scripture, uh, the accounts of, of men and women who were just like us. Uh, the, the odds were stacked against them. Sometimes God even put them in a position where the odds were stacked against them just so that He could shine as He was working behind the scenes in their life, helping them to overcome adversity, helping them to, to overcome all of the odds. And, and one of my favorite stories like this 
um, is actually uh, about a man named Joseph. Uh, Joseph from the book of Genesis, not to be confused with Joseph, the earthly father of, of Jesus. Um, Joseph from the book of Genesis, he uh, really is a, a story of an underdog for the ages. And if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, uh, you will be by the end of, of today because we're going to take this 30,000-foot overview of Joseph's life and his account. And if you are familiar with the story of Joseph, then my prayer today is that you'll see maybe the story in a new light. You'll see how um, this account uh, of this man who lived so long ago um, has things to teach us and have implications for our life even today. And so let's look at the, the account together. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. If you have a Bible app that you like to use on your smartphone or your device, go ahead and pull that out. Genesis <clears throat> chapter 37. And we're not going to read all 13, 14 chapters, um, but we're just going to kind of look piece by piece at his story as we go. And I want to look at the story of Joseph um, through two lenses. I want to look at this account of Joseph through the lens of Joseph's integrity and his perspective. Joseph's integrity and his perspective. These two things are firmly linked in Joseph's life. And, and if he didn't have the perspective he had, then I believe that Joseph wouldn't have had the integrity. Like when life got tough, when things were pushing against him, I don't think that Joseph would have maintained his integrity without his perspective. And when I use the word integrity, what I'm talking about is that that you're the same person in your public life that you are in your private life. That whoever you are when the family is gone, whoever you are when no one is looking, whoever you are when you're in that quiet moment all by yourself, that, that you're striving to be that same person publicly that you are privately, that you're not putting on a show for other people's approval, um, but that you are living this life of consistency, of, of integrity. That, that's integrity. And Joseph showed an incredible amount of integrity because I believe that Joseph's integrity in life was deeply rooted in his perspective of God. Because he understood what God was doing, because he understood God's love and his plan, then Joseph was able to maintain his, his integrity. And we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go on. So let's dive into our text, Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, and, and we'll read a couple of times here throughout this account the name Israel. Israel was God's given name to Jacob. And so when you hear Israel in this context, it's not talking about the, the nation, it's talking about Jacob. So Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. He and his brothers, when his brothers saw that their fathers loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, right off the bat here, we see that there's a little bit of family dysfunction going on. Uh, our first clue is that there's, there's multiple wives. Jacob has multiple wives. That's kind of the first clue of some family dysfunction. And it's important to note that um, just because the Bible says something doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible endorses something. And so just because the Bible says that Jacob had multiple wives is not saying um, that the God or the Bible endorses having multiple wives here. And in fact, we see in Jacob's life and his family, this actually created quite a few issues 
Um, not the least of which is it created some favoritism. And our first introduction to Joseph is kind of his favoritism of his father. We, we hear about him ratting, ratting out his brothers on something. And then to add to it, his father gives him this ornate robe. Some people call it a coat of many colors. And whatever it was, it was meant to be a symbol of Jacob's favoritism for his son, Joseph, over his 11 brothers. And this isn't going to be good for Joseph because favoritism is kind of the root cause of jealousy and envy. And this coat was a demonstration of Jacob's love for Joseph that, that he didn't have for his other 11 sons. And so this creates jealousy. And to make matters even worse, Joseph begins having these dreams that then he shares with his family. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. <laughs> His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he had said and and he didn't learn his lesson because it goes on in verse 9. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers, hey, listen to this one. I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the, mind, the matter in mind. Now, he basically tells his family, Listen, guys, I'm having these crazy dreams. Um, where I rise up to the top, and then you all bow down to me. Now, imagine how well that would go over in your family. Like you went to your, your brothers, your siblings, your parents, and you said, whoa, you know what? You're going to end up bowing down to me one day. You're going to revolve around me. Uh, I remember one time when I was younger, much younger, uh, I had a little brother, Chad. We were out in the backyard playing, and I wanted him to do something that, that he didn't want to do. And I'm like, no, Chad, you're going to do this. Like, so I tried to make him do that. And he got so frustrated with me that he picked up a bat that was laying on the ground. And he started chasing me around the backyard, swinging the bat at me. I imagine if I told him, hey, Chad, you're going to bow down and serve me one day. Like, it would end up a lot like that. It would not go over well. And the truth is, it didn't go over very well for Joseph either. Some time goes by, his brothers are out tending the flock, which was the family business, and their father Jacob sends Joseph out to check up on them. Basically, he says, hey, go and see if they're doing their job, and then report back to me. And so he sets out to find his, find his brothers, which means that they are out in the field working while Joseph is at home, even though he is of working age. And so this just only further shows his father's favoritism for him, and I'm sure it only further angered his brothers. And when they see Joseph coming, they say in verse 19, um, here comes that dreamer, which I don't think was a term of endearment that they had for their brother. And they, they devise this plan to kill him. But one of his brothers, Reuben, says, no, let's not, let's not kill him. Let's just kind of rough him up a little bit and maybe scare him. And so they wrestle off his coat and they throw him into this cistern and then they go and have lunch. And about that time, there's this group of travelers coming through, and, uh, and they, they trade him to these travelers <clears throat> for 20 pieces of silver. 
And they take this coat, they slaughter an animal, they put some blood on it, they take it back home to their father. They say, Father, Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Father goes into mourning and the brothers feel like um, they finally got rid of this problem. But God is working behind the scenes in Joseph's life. And, and what we see is that God's plan is only beginning to unfold. So Joseph ends up in Egypt. He goes into the slave trade and is sold to a man named Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials. He's the captain of the guard. And in Potiphar's house, something interesting happens to Joseph. He quickly rises up. He keeps getting promoted and promoted and promoted, eventually to the point where he is in charge of all of Potiphar's household. He oversees the finances. He oversees the servants. He oversees everything. And Potiphar takes notice of Joseph, but so does Potiphar's wife. The text tells us in chapter 39, verse 6, that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And so Potiphar's wife takes notice of him and actually begs him on multiple occasions to sleep with her. Now, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Here's a young man that has been betrayed by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. Life has not been kind to him. It has not been fair. Some would even say that God has not been fair to Joseph. But now here he is in this position of power and authority, and he has the opportunity to do something that as a young man he would probably be naturally inclined to do. And yet Joseph decides not to. And I think the reason why he displays this kind of integrity comes from his perspective in life, which we see in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9. Look at it with me. Joseph, as he's refusing her advances, he says, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, this is a really interesting perspective. Joseph doesn't say, how could I sin against Potiphar? He doesn't say, how could I sin against you? He doesn't say, how could I sin against me? Even though he would have been doing all of those things, what he says is, how can I sin against God? You see, Joseph did not embrace this, this attitude of entitlement to sin. He didn't justify it by saying that life has been unfair. God has been unfair. I deserve this. Instead, Joseph had his perspective that any sin is ultimately against God. And so he maintains this integrity, even though it literally costs him years of his life. Fast forward a few verses. Potiphar's wife continues to make these advances towards Joseph, trying to convince him to sleep with her. And this time, Joseph runs away. He flees from temptation. And as he goes, she reaches out, she grabs his cloak, she pulls it off of him. And then she begins to holler for the guards and says, that Hebrew tried to rape me. And so they go, they capture him, and they throw him in prison. And so Joseph's integrity his desire to be publicly who he is privately based on his perspective that any and all sin is ultimately against God. His integrity landed him in prison. His integrity cost him something. And to be honest, there are going to be times in your life, there are going to be times in my life where integrity is going to cost us something. <clears throat> it might cost you a promotion. It might cost you a little bit more on your taxes. It might cost you a benefit that you've been taking advantage of. It might cost you even a relationship. More often than not, integrity is going to cost you something. And the question that I have for us today is, are you willing to pay the price of integrity? 
Are you willing to pay the price of integrity? Joseph was, and we read in verse 20 that while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. God continued to work behind the scenes of Joseph's life, doing something that he couldn't even begin to imagine in that moment. Joseph is in the king's prison, and while he's there, he meets a couple of very influential people. He meets the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. They'd been thrown into prison for something. We don't know what it was, but they were officials and and chiefs in Pharaoh's court, and so it's likely that maybe um, they didn't do their job right, or maybe even one of them tried to poison them, and so they threw him in prison while they figured out what was going on. And while they're in prison, they begin to have these dreams. And Joseph says, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I can, I can interpret your dream for you. And so the cupbearer tells him his dream. And Joseph says, hey, man, things are going to go well for you. Um, you're going to live. You're going to be out of here soon. And when you do, when you get back before the Pharaoh, please tell him about me. Tell him my story. And then to the baker, he basically said, sorry, dude, it's not going to turn out too well for you. <laughs> your time is short. You're going to die. And that's actually how it plays out. But then look at what happens um, in Genesis chapter 40, verse 23. Chief Cupbearer gets out. However, he did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And I imagine that that's how Joseph felt for a lot of his life. Forgotten. Not just by people, but, I, but I'm sure that at some point through all of this ordeal, Joseph probably began to feel like he had been forgotten by God, too. Like God just didn't care for him. At some point through all of this, the weight of Joseph's circumstances had to make him think, is all of this worth it? It had to make him feel like all of this was just too big of a deficit for him to overcome. And full two years go by. During that time, Joseph had caught the attention of the prison officials. He had actually began to even work himself up, even though he was a prisoner himself. He began to have more responsibilities within the prison. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has these dreams, and the chief cupbearer goes, Hey, that's right, I was supposed to tell you about someone a couple of years ago. There's this guy named Joseph who's down in prison. I think he might be able to help you out. And so Pharaoh goes, they pull him out of prison. He tells him his dream, and Joseph says, Yeah, I can tell you what that means. He says, listen, there's going to be a famine coming, and you need to start preparing for it now. And Pharaoh is so impressed by him that what happened to him in in Potiphar's house begins to happen to Joseph now, only in the kingdom of Egypt. Joseph is is promoted to the second in command, only to Pharaoh. He's, He's given command and charge over this massive effort to save and store grain in preparation for the famine that's going to hit. Now, don't miss this. It would be very easy to look back on the past several years of Joseph's life and see them as a waste. But in reality, Joseph was gaining the wisdom and experience that he was going to need to rule over Egypt. Everything from overseeing Potiphar's house to leadership opportunities that he was given in prison, God was using all of this to prepare Joseph for something that he could not see. And here's the truth for us today. Your current circumstances... Like as difficult as they might be, your current circumstances may very well be preparing you for opportunities in ways that you can't even imagine right now. Your pain, your heartache, 
your dead-end job, that thing that you lay awake at night, just praying for it to go away, praying for your circumstances to be different than what they are. I'm telling you, God just might be working behind the scenes in your life, and he wants to use that very thing. He wants to use that very thing in ways that you can't even imagine right now. And there is no way that while Joseph was being betrayed by his brothers, being sold into slavery, being falsely accused, being forgotten in jail, there is no way that he could imagine himself one day being second only to Pharaoh. But each step of the way, each painful step of the way, God was actually preparing him for that role. And he might be doing that exact same thing in your pain right now. And so the famine comes, and Egypt is well-stocked. They have storehouses upon storehouses full of grain because of how God used Joseph. And this famine is so severe that it's being felt all over the world, including where Joseph's father and brothers live. And Jacob hears that there is food in Egypt, and so he sends his sons there to try to get a little bit of it. And little did they know that they were about ready to come face-to-face with the brother that they had sold into slavery all those years ago. In the next few chapters are, are a little long and, and drawn out, but basically Joseph knows who they are, but they don't recognize him, and so he hides his identity from them. He, he pulls a couple of tricks on them to try to see what their intentions are, see if they're up to no good, which how can you blame them? He doesn't really trust them right at this point. And at the end of all of this, Joseph reveals who he is, and he shows his brothers and his family grace by giving them grain. And then he tells them to go and grab the entire family, everybody, and bring them to Egypt where he will provide for them. And so they'll go back, they get Jacob, and the family settles in to Egypt. And all is going well until Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers are a little nervous, a little anxious that now he's going to get revenge that he's been waiting for, but There was this block because his father was still alive, but now that he's gone, there's nothing to stop him. But once again, we see Joseph's integrity combined with his perspective. Look at the end of the story, Genesis 50, verse 19 through 21. When his brothers fearfully approach Joseph, this is what he says to them. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Now, I want to just pause right there because Joseph, Joseph doesn't let him off the hook. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, guys, it's, it's okay. Hey, water under the bridge. Or, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Like, no, he acknowledges that what they did was pure evil. Like, you, you intended to harm me. But then look at how he finishes it. He says, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph had learned this perspective of what God was doing in the midst of all of this. He says, so then, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So here's Joseph. He's lost years off of his life. He's been separated from his family because of his brother's jealousy and their evil intentions. And yet in a moment when he could have gotten revenge and nobody would have blamed him. Joseph had a greater perspective, and he maintained his integrity. 
And I think it's all because he had learned a lesson through all of those ups and all of those downs that he had experienced in life, a lesson that I believe that God wants you and I to learn even today, and it's this. You can trust your unknown future to a known God. Like, like your, your current circumstances, they, they may, there may be more questions than there are answers. It may be unknown, but you can trust that to a known God who loves you and who is for you. See, Joseph's perspective was that what God was doing behind the scenes was good, even though the circumstances were evil, even though it didn't look like it. It was good. Even though it looked like he was down and out multiple times, he knew that God was capable of redeeming even the worst of circumstances. And so when Joseph could have taken revenge, he opted for redemption. When he could have given his brothers what they deserved, instead he gave them what they did not deserve, which was grace. And the story of Joseph should remind us about someone else. You have a father's cherished son who is sold out by sinful men for pieces of silver. And then he's accused of something that he did not do and punished even though he was innocent. That punishment, however, was all a part of God's plan to save his people. And that's exactly what God did for us through Jesus. He used the evil circumstances of his son being accused and betrayed for things that he did not do, bearing a guilt that was not his to bear all because this is what God does. He brings redemption into our lives. He's always working behind the scenes to turn something ugly into something beautiful, to turn what seems like a helpless and a hopeless situation into a beautiful comeback story of grace and redemption. And so even in the darkest and worst moments of your life, God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He is working behind the scenes in your life, even in the midst of the painful situations to accomplish his ultimate plan for you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can hold on to you, our known God, even in the midst of unknown circumstances, even in the midst of unknown trials and known pains. Thank you that you are with us, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28, that you're working all things out to the good of those who love you. And sometimes, Lord, I got to be honest, in my life, it's really hard to see that. And the pain, feels, the pain feels a lot closer than you are. God, in those moments, for that person that maybe is even going through that right now, would you give hope? Would you give peace? Would you provide comfort? Lord, would you let them know that you are near to them, the brokenhearted, and that you're working all things out to their good somehow, some way, even though they cannot see it. They can trust you, their known God, their Heavenly Father. So may we hang on to that as we walk through the difficult and the sometimes evil circumstances of life. Thank you for being our rock. In Jesus' name, amen.